Good morning. The text we'll be looking at is printed in your bulletin. If you've been with us throughout, really since January, um, we've been doing this series uh, looking at what it means to encounter God. Or, or, or basically, another way to think of that is what would it mean to know Him? And we've been looking at stories from the life of two of the prominent prophets in the Old Testament. Uh, that would be Elijah and Elisha. Uh, you might be wondering this morning, how in the world are you going to finish this series? Or uh, are you ever going to finish this series uh, would be another way. We've uh, seen some amazing things, or at least the stories have been amazing. Uh, children being raised from the dead. Uh, pots that never uh, were emptied. And at the same time, we've seen some really interesting stories as well. Uh, we've seen bears mauling uh, children. Uh, we've actually seen women eating children. Um, so how are we going to finish this? This morning, we're going to look at this final installment from the life of Elisha. This section uh, covers the reign of Jehoash. It's about 33 years uh, in time. So look with me. Uh, as we read from 2 Kings chapter 13. In the 37th year of Jehoash, king of Judah, Jehoash, son of Jehoahaz, became king of Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 16 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from the sins of, his, sins of Jer- Jeroboam, son of Naboth, which he caused Israel to commit, and he continued in them. As for the other events, in the reign of Jehoash. All he did in all his achievements, including his war against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? Jehoash rested with his ancestors, and Jeroboam succeeded him on the throne. Jehoash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Now Elisha had been suffering from the illness from which he died. Jehoash, king of Israel, went down to see him and wept over him. My father, my father, he cried, the chariots and the horsemen of Israel. Elisha said, get a bow and some arrows, and he did so. Take a bow in your hands, he said to the king of Israel. He'd taken it. Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. Open the east window, he said, and he opened it. Shoot, Elisha said, and he shot. Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Aram. Elisha declared, you will completely destroy the Arameans at Aphek. Then he said, take the arrows, and the king took them. Elisha told him, strike the ground. He struck it three times and stopped. The man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have defeated Aram and completely destroyed it, but now you will defeat it only three times. Elisha died and was buried. Now, Boabite raiders used to enter the country every spring. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that you would be with us as we look into these and this very odd story, strange to us. Um, And yet we all come this morning again needing to meet with you, needing to see you, needing to be taught by you. It really doesn't matter our circumstances and our backgrounds. That is uh, our deepest need and our deepest longing. Be with us, we pray. In the name of Jesus, we come. Amen. Have you ever wondered what might happen if a giant asteroid would hit our planet um, as it did millions of years ago? One astrophysicist says this, Jupiter is actually our first line of defense. 
It is something like 99.9% efficient at throwing dangerous junk out of space, asteroids and meteorites, back into space. He goes on to describe how that actually happens. He says that Jupiter is 318 times heavier than the Earth. And because of its mass, it creates a huge gravitational field that acts as a cosmic vacuum cleaner, is the way he describes it. It draws junk uh, that floats into its gravitational field, and it turns it away to other planets. You may not realize this, but Jupiter displayed its sort of protective power about six years ago when a comet broke off. Uh, the description is that it was heading straight our way and it had more power to it than all the atomic bombs that had ever been released on our planet. We all know that not all uh, space junk actually gets sucked up by Jupiter, but it certainly minimizes the destructive forces that would actually land and cause havoc on our planet. The Romans knew something of this when they named that planet Jupiter. In the old Latin, Jupiter actually means sky father. And it certainly occupies that role within our solar system. And that brings us really to this story, believe it or not. Um, what in the world does Jupiter have to do with what we read in this peculiar account from the life of a king and the life of a prophet. Just on the surface, this story is not a story for the powerful. What this, if you read the narrative carefully, this story carefully, what you realize is that this king really has nothing. The chapter sort of shows the end results of Elisha's ministry and his prophecy. It also demonstrates what happened to Israel before this particular story. All that Jehoaz actually has at this point in time are enough chariots and soldiers for a parade. He really has nothing else. Israel's been decimated, and the king finds himself actually in, in desperate need of not just a consult. Um, he's in desperate need of help and deliverance is the best description. And everything up to this point in time in the story has not worked at all. And that is sort of the small aside. In weakness, what we see here and what we've seen repeatedly is that God shows up. Uh, and actually the worst of times, in the weakest of times, His grace is known. He doesn't choose to show up here because the king is noble. Uh, that would be a misunderstanding of actually the story itself. It's also not because he's the strongest. Instead, what we find is he's at his very weakest. Most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, and with those around us, we spend our time running from this. We certainly don't want it for our children. We would say things like this, I want my children to know God. Or if you're a Christian, you would say, I want my children to know Jesus. But, I want him to know this God, and I want him to know this Jesus without any weakness, without any failures, without any brokenness. You see, and what this story shows you is that that cannot actually happen. The Bible repeats this over and over again. It doesn't matter who you are. That principle really runs through everything that we read. 
And then we get the first four verses of this story, in case you're wondering how this all ties in. This king's entire life is summarized in four verses, 10 through 13. He basically summarizes everything there is to know about this king in these few verses. Just notice what's going on. Four verses and the king disappears. What do I mean by that? Four verses and he's completely off the page. There's really not much vital importance to his reign. Not really much important about his life even. It's stunning when you think about it. Here's a king uh, that reigned in Israel and all he gets is four verses. That summarizes his life and his importance. If that were not enough, Roger Miller, the old country singer, said this, no matter how big you get, the size of your funeral depends on the weather. Look, if this king, this very important, powerful figure uh, in the ancient Near East, only gets four verses, (laughs) then the question becomes, how do you think he will fare? Some would say, look, I I look at this and my response is, I just don't take anything seriously. That would be one way of responding to that. But the better way would be to respond like this. What should I take seriously? Because that really is what the story is asking in the latter. What is important? What actually has weight in this life and importance? Because everything else in your life trivializes you and it trivializes what you've done. It trivializes your life. So the question becomes, not just sort of the outline of the story, the principles that are found here, but really who's going to defend you in the face of that kind of attack or that kind of reality? What's amazing here is what's not going on here, the who sort of of this story. We want to limit what's happening here to a person. We're surprised that this king would even come and ask Elisha who he is. Because up to this time, what you need to know is that this king is a committed calf worshiper. I know that sounds so odd to us, and yet that was really his commitment in life. We don't know his motives. Why would he come to Elisha now? There's nothing in the story that leads or even hints at this. But we have to wonder, and we also have to wonder this, why would God even listen to this guy? He's shown no interest in God at all. He's shown no interest really in preserving, protecting, defending his people. Um, His life really is a tragedy. The story is really nothing, has nothing to commend him. And yet he comes to Elijah in his story. And God seems to respond. What's even more important is Elisha is dying here. This is a serious sort of illness that's going on. Elisha is the one, as we've seen repeatedly, through whom God worked, or more importantly, the one through whom God showed up. The one through whom everyone experienced the reality of who God is. Up to this point in time, he's the only one, really, that fought uh, for God's people, that protected people, that sheltered them, uh, that ministered to them. And what's really the tragedy, this is the end of the era uh, when those mighty prophets 
would walk the land. And the question is, is there really dark days ahead? Uh, Not just for this king, uh, but more importantly, for God's people. Is the power resource fading here? Is the light going out? Is no one indispensable? And then we come across Elisha's response to this king, which uh, is very odd for us. What do I mean by that? Why this thing with the arrows? I don't know if you you read that and you just thought, this is just weird. Why this strange custom? Why did Elisha tell him to get the arrows, and why did the king do it? And, and not question, he understood something of what was going on. Arrows were widely used in the ancient Near East. We have wall murals, and the arrows depicted dominion. What's really going on here in this story is that God is stepping forward. Elisha is disappearing, but God is stepping forward, as, as one writer said, the divine warrior. He's the one who's stepping up. It's hard for us to actually relate to this story at all, and yet it's a constant theme throughout the Old Testament. Exodus says this, The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is His name. And Elisha lays his hands on this less than ideal king uh, to depict grace and blessing to him in his endeavors. God determines determined to actually bring goodness and wholeness um, in spite of the one who was asking. God's going to show up even if this king is present. And that is an absolute reoccurring thing. Again, in Exodus, I've seen the oppression of my people, and that's all that matters. It doesn't matter who the king is. It doesn't matter what he's done. The only thing that matters is that the heart of God is actually moving out in and among his people. Everything else, Elisha's life, this king's life, fades in comparison. You also need to know this, this God wars not only for his people, he also wars against this king. Um, This king is the one who had mistreated his people, who had never cared for them at all. And what is needed is a violent intervention And God steps into the gap. This God is a warrior God, but he wars out of love. One who fights because he has a love commitment to bring goodness, healing, and wholeness. And get this, he's more committed to this than you could ever be. That's really what this story is all about. This lady tells a story that she and her neighbor's uh, little girl was out playing in the wood, and the neighbor had wandered from the path and stepped onto uh, what most likely was a yellow jacket nest in the ground. And these things began to swarm and sing, and she began, this little girl began to cry for help. Suddenly, out of nowhere, like Superman, the dad came crashing through the woods, leaping over logs, hurtling vines and bushes. He swoops this girl up and just carries her full speed away from this nest. As he ran, the father's grip bruised the child's arm. Branches scratched her thighs. Thorns grabbed at her skin and her clothing. This rescue, it was painful, but it was much better than standing around a bee. Just know this, your father, 
Your God wars for you. Every day, all of us are engaged in a warfare that screams at us. We struggle, um, if we're honest. We struggle against ourselves. Uh, the internal demons, the voices that we all know are present and that we do are very, uh, we put a lot of energy into pushing those down and we struggle against those around us. This battle we engage in, it wages in our work and in our home. Why do I say that? It's common actually to everyone. No one is immune from that. Our response to that is normally we blame it on others. <laughs> um, it's my boss's fault, or the people I work with, or it's my spouse's fault, or it's my children's fault, or it's my parents' fault. Um, uh, we blame it. We long for someone that would come in and scoop us up and carry us out of that mess and that brokenness. Every superhero that we read about, every movie that we entertain, uh, points us to this. It's sort of Superman's re-release. Everyone knows the story. And yet, why is it still intriguing? Why do we still sort of buy into that? Why do we listen to that? If you hear nothing else this morning, know this. Christianity is not about your promise. It is not about your performance. It is not about doing better. Instead, it's about His promise. It's not about a victory that somehow you achieve or that you win. Instead, it's about a victory, a God that warred for you, that won the victory. Now, how do you respond to such a promise with such um, a verbal affirmation? Well, the response that we find here in verses 15 through 19 is interesting. Just back to the story overall. It it really summarizes Elisha's life. You have this king, unworthy, standing before Elisha, standing before grace offered to him, and how does he respond? And that's really what matters in the story. Would he embrace God's grace with gusto? Would he embrace it with everything that he has? Well, as we read the story, he's told to strike the ground. He's encouraged to do so by Elisha. He begins doing that, and then something happens. In the face of grace, he suddenly draws back. The promise is there that God is going to do amazing things for him. And he responds, sort of. <laughs> the best way to describe it is halfway. God basically presents him a blank check and the king responds by saying, yeah, I only cash half of that. Why? Why does he only strike the ground three times? We're never told. Was it that he was unconvinced? Did he have enormous doubts? Uh, did he lack faith? Was it that he realized suddenly uh, that he wasn't worth or worthy of this? He knows his background. He knows what he's done. He knows what he's done to God's people. Maybe the guilt and shame of that just sort of overwhelmed him. But the results are tragic. And everyone, not just the king, suffers. Verse 19. The man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have defeated Aram and completely destroyed it. 
The reality is Syria would not be completely destroyed, and because of that, Israel would continue to suffer. This king, for whatever reason, is content not to destroy. What he actually wanted to do was just contain the enemy enough for the time being. You see, when grace was offered, he should have grabbed it with both hands. He should have pounded the ground with the arrows. As we've read elsewhere, he should have responded by by saying, Bless me or I die. Instead, you see his response. Aren't we a lot like that? We look at what God promises us and we think, sort of, kind of, maybe. Change. We look at the promise of change and we think, eh, that's just a mere word. Hope, we actually vaguely hope, but not really. It just becomes a word for us. What we need, what Israel needed, what God's people needed, is another king. A king who wouldn't hesitate. A king who actually would be bold. A king who would seize hold of God's promises for me so that my enemies would not just be contained, but they could actually be destroyed. You see, what was Jesus doing on the cross? I mean, what was really happening there? That is God himself, your divine warrior, going to war for you. A warrior giving himself, holding nothing back, um, seizing God's grace with everything that he has, paying the price. You've probably seen the documentary, The March of the Penguins, haven't it's about the imperial penguins of antarctica they go on an incredible journey every year uh, to their mating ground 70 miles inland Uh, once the penguins have made their little trek the females have produced their eggs an exchange occurs that uh, really is unexplainable it's remarkable actually they sort of do this intricate little dance um, and each mother swaps the eggs uh, to the father's care and at that point in time, the father takes complete care over uh, an oversight of the eggs. And this is sort of when the documentary and the, full, uh, the film unfold. It shows sort of what the fathers do to secure the eggs on top of their feet, sheltering them against the cold, which uh, if you've ever seen it, you realize the temperatures drop to minus 80 uh, at that particular point in that location. It's... The fathers, the males, who actually will uh, protect and shield the eggs. The mothers go and gather food and brings it back. But it's the fathers that actually shield from the violent winds. He makes a nest on the top of his feet for this egg. He buries it under a flap of skin that he has. And he does this for more than two months. Winter progresses. He doesn't move. By the time his vigil is over, um, they have gone without food for more than 125 days. And they endure one of the most violent and deadly winters on the planet, all for the chicks. See, what you see is boldness. You can't see and look at Jesus warring for you, his shelter of you, his bringing you in even in the most violent of storms. And you can't look at that and respond sort of. If you're a Christian this morning, if the gospel is true, you're called to be bold. Why? If Jesus sacrifices everything for you, if He secures everything for you, then that begs the question, where's the risk? 
You see, what this calls us to is no retreat, and it means that you can't hide. What does that mean? Uh, this morning, we had a reading at the very beginning about the Trinity, and it talks about family life. So I'm going to just move into that. This hints at a father who gives himself to his family. See, if you know that, if, if you have children this morning, what that means is this. There's a disregard of your own agenda, your own glory for them, laboring actually to deliver them. What it doesn't mean is this, retreating into your job or your office or dumping your family on your spouse. For some of you here, you change jobs like you change clothes. Um, in other words, if it doesn't suit you, regardless of what it might mean for your family, their situation, their needs, uh, it doesn't matter. You move for the same reason. You ignore sort of stability and community. Listen, if you want to be a parent like this, if you want to know this reality, or better yet, if you want this to be seen in your family, then you have to know the one who's labored for you. You have to know the one who's given for you. You have to know the one, you have to know his sacrifice, his willingness to war for you in order to provide you shelter. Ann Bird writes a book called The Whisper Test, and in it she writes about her own experience growing up, and she says, I knew I was different and I hated it. She said, I was born with a cleft palate. When I started school, my uh, classmates made it clear to me uh, that I looked different than others, that I was the girl with the misshapened lip, crooked nose, lopsided teeth. Early on, the classmates would ask me what happened. She said, I'd tell them I, I'd fallen and cut it on a piece of glass. It seemed more acceptable, she says, to explain it as an accident rather than I could have been born differently. She said, I became convinced that no one outside my family loved me. She said, except Mrs. Leonard. She was a short, round, happy, sparkling lady. And annually we had a hearing test. Ms. Leonard gave the test to everybody in the class, and finally it was my turn. Uh, she said, I knew from years past that I would stand against the door, cover one ear, and the teacher would sit at the desk and whisper something, and I'd have to repeat it back. It would be something like, the sky's blue, do you have new shoes? She said, I waited at the door, and the seven words that Ms. Leonard gave me changed my life. She said she whispered this. I wish you were my little girl. Look, all of us this morning come with that kind of brokenness. And yet God whispers to you, even now, I wish you were mine. If you don't know him this morning, you need to hear and know that voice. I wish you were mine. For those who do know that, it provides you with boldness and courage in the face of everything. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your great love and mercy that even this morning you call us your very own. All of us gather here with a brokenness that we cannot fix, a woundedness that we cannot repair, wounds that we bear caused by others, caused by ourselves, and yet you whisper to us that you wish that we were yours. Let us hear that voice this morning. Let us taste and know of your embrace. In the rich name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We come now.